all of my high schoolers are sitting over here. <laughs> I see you guys. A story is told of a wealthy developer who enjoyed knowing as much as he could about the employees who worked for his huge company. One day he encountered a new employee, a young man who was expertly counting a large amount of money into individual pay envelopes. The developer said, where did you receive your training in finance, young man? The employee answered, Yale. Oh, good, good, said the developer. It's a great institution who was a great advocate of higher education. By the way, what is your name? And the employee answered, Yaxson. <laughs> I'll give you a minute to kind of catch up to that because uh, I too was like, where was Chuck going with this? <laughs> to, to the point where I was like trying it out on people. Like my mother-in-law and my family, like, do, do you get that? <laughs> so for those of you that don't understand, the guy can't say J. So that's the issue. <laughs> wow, you guys are really quick. Sunday morning and all. It's not difficult at times to interpret things as we once have now seen. It's easy to see that we live in a difficult world. We live in difficult times. The world around us is filled with gang shootings, drug and alcohol related incidents. And we live in a difficult time and things are not getting better. Man is totally and unshamedly depraved and this is not just my take. So this morning, if you've got your Bible, if you'll join me in 2 Timothy, and we're gonna look at a biblical perspective of the world that we live in. And see, it's not difficult for us to realize that we as God's people are living in a difficult time. And there's people that are out there that feel that things aren't that bad. There's people that are out there that are looking from a horizontal perspective trying to find pain in their difficulty, whether it's drugs or alcohol or whatever their vice might be. There's people that are trying to escape the difficulties of life. And the Bible clearly tells us that we're not going to be able to escape that difficulty. We as a church just went through a difficult time. And we're gonna to continue to go through difficult times. So in 2 Timothy chapter three, starting in verse one, it says this. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revealers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. 
men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. And notice also down in verse 13 it says, but evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I wanna draw your attention back to verse one where it talks about difficult times. It's very apparent we're living in difficult times. As we look back over the last month of the hurricanes and, and Katrina and Rita and the tsunamis and the brush fires and everything that's going on in our world, we are living in difficult times. Notice there in verse eight through nine, it talks about being depraved. It means as bad off spiritually as one could get. We're dead towards God. We're unmoved by anything spiritually. Isn't that true of the world we live in? Don't we live in a world that are, is depraved of anything spiritually? You know, where is, God, where is God gone? We look at the leadership of our nation and we're just appalled to the decisions that they've made. And our foundation of our country was built on biblical basis and it's like that's a challenge every day. Man, men have taken on the attitude, we don't need God. We know how to do this. We can do it on our own. In verse 13, it talks about being deceived. See, the world is filled with imposters. They're rip-off experts in every prof profession, and I mean every profession. We look at religion and politics and businesses, men and women who speak smoothly out of both sides of their mouth, and they're drawing people away from God. We live in a difficult, depraved, and deceived world. And through all of that, of what we just read, you may be asking yourself, how can I possibly, me, just me, one person make a difference in this humongous world that we live in? I ask myself that question daily. Maybe you too ask that question. Maybe you've come to the conclusion that, you know what, I can't change the system. I'm not big enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not rich enough. I can't change the system. You know, maybe you've adopted a fatalistic approach to life. Maybe you're reflecting an attitude of defeated, of being a defeated person. As I spoke at Chuck's funeral, I, I, I touched on that, that we as Christians are not defeated. We're just living in a sinful world. This morning I wanna address that question, how you and I as Christians can make a difference. As Christians with faith in Christ, we can make a difference. But before we get started on that, I wanna to read to you a story that I believe will help lay a foundation for what we're about to talk about this morning. The story goes like this. There was a quiet forest dweller who lived high above an Austrian village along the eastern slopes of the Alps. The old gentleman had been hired many years ago by a young town council to clear away the debris from pools of water up in the mountain crevices that fed the lovely springs. Flowing through their towns with faithful, silent regularity, he patrolled the hills. He removed the leaves and branches and wiped away the silt that would otherwise choke and contaminate the fresh flow. By and by, the village became a popular attraction for people just like you and I. Graceful swans floated along the crystal clear spring. The mill wheels of various businesses located near would turn day and night. Farmlands were naturally irrigated. Years passed and one evening the town council met for its semi-annual meeting. 
As they reviewed the budget, one man's eye caught the salary figure being paid to that keeper. And he stated, who is this old man and what does he do? No one ever sees him. For all we know, he's a stranger of the hills and is doing us no good. He isn't necessary any longer, and the town council voted to remove his position. For several weeks, nothing changed. By early autumn, the trees began to shed their leaves. Small branches snapped off and fell into the pools, hindering the rushing flow of the sparkling water. One afternoon, someone noticed a slight yellowish tint in the water. A couple days later, the water was much darker. Within another week, a slimy film covered sections of the water along the banks. The mill wheels moved slowly. Some finally ground to a halt. Swans and tourists left. Quickly embarrassed, the council called a special meeting, realizing their gross error in judgment. And they hired back the old keeper of the spring, and within a few weeks, the spring began to clear up. The wheels started to turn, and new life returned to the hamlet. See, that story is more than just a vivid tale. It's a relevant analogy of the world that we're living in. See, the world thinks that they don't need us Christians in it. Like they thought we don't need the keeper of the spring, the world says we don't need Christians. But I say, yes, we do. We have a job to do. The Bible teaches this to be true. In fact, Jesus clearly teaches that all Christians, true servants, are indispensable influences for God. Let's jump over to Matthew chapter five. And we begin to touch on our points today. Matthew chapter five, starting in verse 13. And we're gonna look at two metaphors that Jesus speaks of where it talks about as Christians, you and I can make a difference in the world we're living in. That's the good news. Yeah, the world around us is a wreck. Yes, it's easy for us to look at all the devastation. Yes, it's easy for us to recognize the problems. Yes, it's easy for us to recognize the rising gas prices. It's easy to see the difficulty we're in. But God teaches us that we have a job to do even in those difficult times. So let's look at it. Matthew chapter five, starting at verse 13, it says this. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under foot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So going back in verse 13, it calls us, we are the salt of the earth. Salt of the earth. Have any of you ever smelt rotten meat? Disgusting. I mean, it is one word, just nasty. You know, the world that we live in is rotting. And it's nasty. You know, when you look at a five-star restaurant, they usually have a spectacular entrance. You go inside and they've got a spectacular ambiance about it. It's inviting, it wants to draw you in. That's their goal, to present a facade, to draw you into their restaurant. But you know something? When you go to the back of those restaurants, they're nasty. 
the dumpsters stink, there's flies flying around, it's like the mobs out there, and you're just like, what happened to the five-star restaurant? It's disgusting, and that's the world that we're living in, isn't it? Doesn't the world present itself as a five-star restaurant? Doesn't it say, hey, look at us, look at what we have to offer, come on in, try it. Isn't that how we live every day? Doesn't Satan use everything he can to draw us into our flesh? But it's nasty. John 3, 16 says simply this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So whoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The word perish, you know, that's a cliche verse. We see it everywhere. At ball games, everywhere we go, we see John 3, 16. But think of that word, perish. See, God knows the world we're living in is perishing. It's not getting better. And so God recognized that, did the most valuable thing he could ever do. His son, he gave up his son. As parents, that'll cut right through your soul. Jesus, God gave up the most valuable thing he had, and that's his son. He allowed him to come to the earth, walk a perfect life, a sinless life, be put on a cross and crucified so that all of us would not perish. There is no greater love than that. Don't ever minimize the verse, John 3, 16, the importance of it. One commentator wrote, disciples are called to be moral disinfectants in a world where moral standards are low, constantly changing or non-existent. I like that. We're to be moral disinfectants See, salt is a perfect analogy that Jesus uses. Why salt? Well, salt has a purpose. See, salt is a preservative. In the olden days, in the cowboy days, when they would get their meat, what would they do? They'd salt it down. It wouldn't stop the decay, but it would slow it down. And as Christians, it's our job to be out there preserving the moral standard of the world we're living in. Every single day, our moral standards get challenged. It's all over the news. We get challenged every day. Salt is a healing agent. When I was younger, I'd get sore throats, my mom would make me do the worst thing ever. <laughs> Gargle with salt water. And it left that terrible taste in your mouth. And she would tell me, it helps, it would heal, it helps. And as Christians, we need to be healing agents to the world that we live in. Matthew 5, 9 says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. Wow, we need to be peacemakers. See, salt also creates thirst. Man, there's nothing that'll get me thirstier than when I eat a bunch of salt. As Christians, we need to be in the world creating thirst. We need to be out in this world creating thirst where people look at it and go, man, there's something that you have that I want. We need to create so much thirst that people are just like got caught in mouth galore. And they're looking for something to drink. See, Jesus says in John 4, 14, taste of my water and you'll never thirst again. And see, the world's thirsty, but they're willing to try anything and they really begin to realize that nothing will ever quench their thirst. And then when they look at us as Christians, they say, hey, how come you're not thirsty anymore? How do you got this figured out? Man, I've tried everything under the sun and I just can't seem to fulfill that desire flesh that I have deep inside of my soul. See, salt also melts snow and ice. 
I used to work at Snow Valley when I was a kid as a ski instructor. And I'd follow up the salt truck at the time up the mountain because it was always the best time to get up there. And the illustration is that, you know, the world has hard and cold hearts. And if you're the salt of the world, that you can melt those cold hearts. But notice there in verse 13 when it says, but. See, but's a, a contrast. We can lose our effectiveness. We can lose our distinctiveness. And when we get to that point, we begin to say to ourselves, why do I even try? As Christians, when we take on that attitude, we're basically good for nothing. Romans 12, 2 says, we shall not be conformed to this world, but transformed. We need to be transformed. Many Christians today are feeling defeated, like we've been trampled under the foot of men. And I say, don't give up. Finish strong. If you got your notes this morning, we'll be looking at truths to consider about salt. Notice there it says, salt is shaken, sprinkled, and not poured. I like that. We're shaken. It's our job as Christians to go out and spread ourselves out, shake it around. We're to get out there and we're to get into our business and get into our jobs and get into our school and get into our families and we have this spread around attitude and we get out there and we get it done. See, as Christians, we don't come here to get hustled together and sit in a salt shaker. See, salt's only good when you grab it and you pour it and you shake it around. Salt does no good put together. You know, I think of the old restaurant trick. I'm starving. I'm hungry, and I get the food placed before me, and I grab the salt shaker, and my mouth's watering, and I'm excited to eat, and I grab that salt shaker, and I go to port, and the cap's not all the way on. <laughs> right? How many of that happened to you, right? The whole thing, woo, right on your plate, and it's just like, it's devastation, <laughs> right? Your flesh takes over, like, ah! You get so angry, it ruins it. No, see, salt's only good when we spread it around. You know, maybe right now you're the only Christian in your work. And you're like, you know what, Jack, that sounds great. You know, I'd like to spread it around, but you don't understand. I'm the only Christian at my work. Will you pray for me? Maybe I should say, well, better yet, you know what, I'm gonna pray for your employees because if you're their only chance they've got to hear about the gospel, <laughs> you know, stop being such a wimp. Get out there and spread it around. And we get caught in that. See, there's a purpose for us as Christians to come together on Sunday. We get together, it's like a football huddle. You know, Chuck always loved to talk about sports. That's why he had that written in his notes, right? We're like a football huddle. We get together on a Sunday morning. We strategize, we pray, we encourage, and then we say, ready, set, break, and we go out and we get it done. Now think about that. Can you imagine like a football team in the huddle? They get in a huddle and they say break and they go out and run a play and then the guys come back together and one guy goes, hey man, I'm not going back out there. <laughs> Did you see how big that guy is over there? <laughs> I'm not going to go back. No, come. I mean, that's ridiculous. They're going to get back in the huddle and they're going to say, hey, I know he's big, but go back out there again. That's what we're paying you to do. Get out there and get it done. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10 and look at the importance of us spreading it around. Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 24. 
Starting in verse 24, it says this, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and, and do good deeds, not forsaking our own, assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawn near. Wow, don't forsake our time together. Get out there and get it done. See, we have all of eternity to spend together. You know, as Chuck lay in the hospital that final week, we as a family were like, you know, we're gonna be all right. Because this is just such a short amount of time on this side of eternity. You know, we're willing to give up Chuck for God's plan knowing that we've got all of eternity to spend together. We need to get out there and get it done. See, in Acts 1.8, the Lord speaks of the commissioning to his disciples. And as Jesus is talking to his disciples, he says to them, I want you to go out into all of the land, the remotest parts of the world, and preach the gospel. See, Jesus doesn't say, okay, guys, listen, I've told you some good stuff. Now, I just want you to keep it amongst yourselves. No, he doesn't say that. He says, hey, go out and give the news. I've laid the foundation. Take what I've given you and spread it around. Go out, reach the world. They need it. They're in difficult times. Point number two. Salt adds flavor, but it's obscure. J. J. Vernon McGee once said, Christians should be the salt and pepper of this earth, but I'm afraid the salt has lost its flavor and the pepper its pep. (laughs) That's right. Don't you feel like that sometimes? You know, salt's obscure, but it it does its job. See, nobody goes to have food at someone's house or have a meal or have dinner with them and go, you know what, this is the best salt I've ever tasted. (laughs) We don't do that. It contributes to the meal, right? It's not the meal, but it contributes. And that's what we're called to do. Number three there, it's unlike any other seasoning. See, salt can't be duplicated. There's no substitution for it. But you know, all medical arguments aside, Biblical position is clear that we are the salt of the earth. You know, I know that there's probably doctors in here right now just kind of squirming, you know, like, oh man, salt, high blood pressure, what's he doing up there? (laughs) But see, back in the day, you know, salt was for medical purposes and it did a purpose and God planned it that way. And what a great illustration that we're to be salt of the earth. The second metaphor that Jesus speaks of, going back to Matthew, let's go back to Matthew chapter five. We're gonna look at the second thing that we're supposed to do. It says in verse 14 there that we're to be the light of the world. The light of the world. We as Christians are to be the light of the world. You know, in John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I want you to stop and think about something. Jesus compares himself to us. Think about that. Jesus says, hey, I am the light of the world. And he says to us, you too must be the light of the world. Think of the power in that. Think of the commandment in that. He calls us the same thing as him. We're to be the light of the world. Our job is to be out there exposing darkness and evil. 
And see, when people begin to see the light for the first time, they begin to see a purpose. In your notes there, under silent, for the light of the world, truth to consider is that light is silent. There's no splash, no banners, no great announcements. We must be faithful and consistent. We must be the lighthouse of the world. The lighthouse of the world. All of us need to be those people that are in our personal lives where people can look to and go, you know, there's something different about him. I don't care what goes on around that guy's life, nothing shakes that person. We need to be the light of the world. We wanna be where people can come to us through difficult times and go, why do you have such a sense of peace? Why aren't you running around acting crazy like the rest of us? We need to be that attraction like a lighthouse for a ship. We need to be guiding people through the difficult times of the world we live in. Point number two is light gives direction. There's no words with it. There's no sermon behind it. It simply shines. You know, some of you might say, well, you know what, Jack, I I am a light. You know, really, the definition of light, I'm a light. And you know, I just wanna show you something here. Some of you, you know, you might be this light bulb. That's a big light bulb. And you know, maybe this is you in your walk with Christ and you're witnessing to people. But see, what I'm afraid of, afraid of is too many of us, <laughs> we're more like this little light. Yeah, you know, Jack, I'm a light. You know, and this is the light that, you know, you might tell somebody, you know, your witness is, well, God bless you. <laughs> like that's supposed to restore them and, and, and give them eternal life and change their world as we say, God bless you. This is, this is my witnessing. Yeah, it's a light. It would qualify as a light. But see, I think what God's saying is that we need to be the big light bulb. We need to light it up. Notice their light attracts attention. One of the most beautiful things any of us always witness is the sunrise and the sunset. Man, it just draws us in, doesn't it? My wife and I were in Cancun in April celebrating our 10-year anniversary, and you're out on the point in Cancun watching just the most spectacular sunrise and sunsets. And we're always trying to like get positioned in front of it, right, so we can get that good picture. Because it's beautiful, it's spectacular. And that's how we need to be as God's people in this world. Attractive. People are drawn to us. I also think of those large spotlights they do at the grand opening of new businesses. And they get those things going all crazy in the sky, flashing around. Now I want to think about that. They're hoping that just by putting light in the air that you're gonna drive 5,000 miles to see what it is. I mean, really, because you don't know what's at the bottom of that light, right? But the simplicity of it is, is that it attracts people. So hey, we've got a grand opening of a business, we're gonna shine the light so everybody can come and just see what it is. And that's what we're called to be. Does it not get any simpler than that? The simplicity of just being the salt of the earth and the light of the world, doing what's right every time. 
standing up for what you believe in. As Christians, we as a church have a job to do, to stand before the world and, and shine the light of truth and expose darkness and expose the evil. You know, my fire job, I see interesting things at times. And I get to walk into people's homes that are just really disgusting. And there's been many a times where I walk in and I flip a light on and cockroaches scatter. Right? And that's how we need to be. Because when we're that light flipping it on, sin's gonna scatter. It's gonna hide, it's gonna be exposed. The cockroaches are gonna run. And that's how we need to be. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote about light. As we produce and reveal it in our daily lives, we must remember that Christians, that the Christian does not call attention to himself. Self has been forgotten in this poverty of spirit, in the meekness and all the other things. In other words, we are to do everything for God's sake and for his glory. Self is to be absent and must be utterly crushed in all its subtlety for his sake, for his glory. It follows from this that we are to do these things in such a way as to lead other men to glorify him and glory in him and give themselves to him. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Yes, and so see them that they will themselves glorify your Father. You are to do the same in order that these other people may glorify him also. As Christians, we have a big responsibility. Our church hasn't been designed to come together for us to encourage each other and then just sit in a bottle. We need to get out there and spread it around as Chuck would always do and at his funeral you could see he was really good at spreading around. I mean, there was people there I'd never even met. And if that's the standard that one guy can make in the impact of the world we're living in, hey man, let's get out of the salt shaker and spread it around. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning with clarity and with understanding that the world we're living in is difficult. God, the Bible clearly, clearly teaches that we will face difficult times and that you call us to be a salt. You call us to be the light. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us, we never lose our effectiveness of salt and we never lose the brightness of our light. Lord, it's easy at times to, to feel defeated. Lord, I just pray as a church that we go out and we maintain our saltiness. We, we maintain our brightness. Lord, I pray for the direction of our church as you continue to guide us through the next several months. Lord, I pray for our elders as they've been tasked with making a decision that you're gonna guide them through, Lord. I thank you for your guidance and your clarity. And it's in your name we pray, amen.